This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Welcome to Forum Nature Biotechnologies podcast where we talk to leading authorities in the field on emerging trends, discuss recent papers and basically anything else in the research realm that interests our editorial team. My name is Andrew Marshall. I'm the chief editor of Nature Biotech. And today we're going to be talking about Protax. So this forum brought together two leading lights in the field, Ray Deshays of Amgen and Caltech and Stanford's Caroline Bertozzi. And our senior editor, Marcus Elsner, had a wide-ranging discussion with them. He's here with me now to, to prepare the ground. So, Marcus, tell me a little bit about why Protax is such a compelling topic right now. Yeah, Protax and, uh, well, related approaches are really a new paradigm in drug development. I think over the last 50 years, um, the main way new drugs were designed was that you had a defined target, and you designed small molecule inhibitors for that target. Protax kind of work differently. The idea is that uh, that Protax does not inhibit or doesn't necessarily need to inhibit um, the protein of interest. The idea is that you bring your protein target in close proximity to a so-called E3 ligase that um, ultimately causes the destruction of, of your target protein by uh, by the proteasome machinery of the cell. And this opens up a whole new class of potential targets uh, that would just not be druggable with, uh, with, existing, with existing approaches. Just to, to, to give our listeners a bit of background, can you give us a definition of a protac? So protacs are proteasome targeting chimeras. And uh, the chimera part is um, defines the way that that those uh, proteins are put together. So they have two parts. Uh, one part is um, is a binder to your target protein. Um, the other part is an um, is a molecule that binds to the E3 ligase. And then you have a linker between the two. That if um, if the two parts bind to their respective partners, they are brought together in the complex. 
ubiquitin is attached to the target protein and then it's funneled into the uh, proteasome and gets degraded. Interesting. So, so, so you know, this is a, a kind of field that's been around for about like a couple of decades. Yeah, but there's there's this other field that's uh, molecular glues. So, can you can you kind of clarify for listeners some of the the differences between molecular glues and protax? Yeah. So the idea is really uh, really similar. Um, so it's they're both small molecules that bring together two or more um, uh, cellular. Uh, cellular proteins. I think the main difference between Protex and molecular glues is the way that they are designed and work. So Protex, as I said, they usually have those two parts. They get designed independently. They optimize the linker and things like this. Uh, molecular glues really make use of um, of the surface of, of the target proteins. They modify by binding uh, both proteins. They mod- modify the surface of a protein the, of the two proteins in a way that they uh, that they form complexes, either dimers or larger multimers. The problem with that principle is that they are much more difficult to rationally design because the, the, it's a much more intricate balance between uh, molecular forces, and most of them tend to be found um, by accident or in, in in very large screens. Uh, this might change as we uh, learn it towards the end of the podcast. Obviously, we we have several approved molecular glues. Yeah, Revlimid, Celgene's Revlimid is the the kind of uh, banner case for for a molecular glue d- drug. But there's there's also kind of um, uh, so, so in terms of the Protax, most of them are still in the clinic. Is that right? Yeah, so we uh, we don't have an approved protec yet. There are more than a dozen clinical trials going on, though. Um, so it's definitely a field of very active clinical development mm. as well. Yeah. And uh, in terms of uh, uh, another area that that uh, really seems to be expanding, and especially in recent months, is this idea of uh, looking beyond the proteasome system. Yeah. So so the, the these different flavors of of a targeted degrader that are that are coming out. So, uh, could you t- tell us a little bit about some of these systems that go beyond the proteasome? Yeah, yeah. The, so the cell has other mechanisms to degrade material. The, the two most important are autophagosomes and lysosomes. And of course, people have developed um, ways to target those um, degradation pathways as well. So they are called light tags if you uh, if you direct things to the uh, lysosomes or R tags if you go to the autophagosomes, um, and they are especially useful if you want to degrade um, extracellular material or um, or plasma membrane proteins that are uh, very difficult or impossible um, to target with classical protags. But Andy, you probably know much more than I do about. Um, what's happening in the commercial realm. So uh, what are biotech companies doing, large pharma companies? Um, so what's happening in this realm? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's no doubt there's a continued uh, interest from pharmaceuticals, multinationals in the area, and there's a whole wealth of uh, startups. Obviously, as you were saying, we have something like 15 companies in clinical trials now um, with traditional 
pro-tax targeting, you know, obviously the, the original targets like androgen receptors and estrogen receptors are, are, are kind of furthest along. But now you, you kind of have this wealth of other um, startups that are, are, are appearing in the last uh, six months or so, a year, like looking at uh, autophagy targeting chimeras or autax as they're known, and these lysosome targeting uh, chimeras or LITAX. So I think there's something like uh, five different startups uh, in the autax space. And uh, obviously, Caroline, there's a, a, a startup based around her technology, the LITAX te technology, using antibodies. But there's also other people who are kind of looking into small molecules. So this is a really exciting space. There's a lot going on. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what uh, Ray and Caroline have to say about it. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's go over to episode 15 of 4. Yeah, so uh, Caroline, Ray, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. And... We're going to talk about proximity and using drugs today. Um, so maybe we can uh, talk about Protax first and maybe then talk a bit more about molecular glues. So Ray, can you explain to us what a Protag is and what it does? So Protag is originally conceived by Craig and I is a heterobifunctional molecule. And what I mean by that is it's a molecule that essentially has two hands, if you will. One of the hands grasps onto a target protein that you want to eliminate from the cell, and the other hand grasps onto a ubiquitin ligase enzyme. And the idea is that both hands are grasping at the same time, so you make a ternary complex that contains your target and the ubiquitin ligase enzyme bridged by the protect molecule. And when you have that proximity, the ubiquitin ligase enzyme does what ubiquitin ligase enzymes do, which is to transfer ubiquitin to lysine residues that are in their vicinity. And so the target has, uh, is ubiquitinated on its lysine residues, and that then serves as a recognition signal to degrade the protein by the proteasome. And so... You know, Craig and I conceived of this idea back, it must have been 1998, I think. And then we started building some, you know, just some molecules to do proof of concept, some demonstration molecules. And we showed pretty quickly that you could make different molecules um, using ligands for different ubiquitin ligases and for different target proteins. And, you know, I think in our first three papers, we showed Uh, probably about five different proteins uh, could be degraded this way via two different ubiquitin ligase pathways. I guess one of the advantages here is that you um, that the the hand that grabs your target molecule doesn't really need to be an inhibitor, so it must be at least in principle simpler to find molecules like this, isn't it? That's absolutely key to the idea right, is that it frees you from the constraint of having to find a molecule that modulates the activity of the target. And this, to me, is a big conceptual break from 
the sort of historical approach, uh, uh, or the approach that's 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 been the dominant approach in drug development, where the drug is the entity that exerts the activity on the target, right? The drug is either is causing a physical change in the target that either re results in a reduction of target activity or an increase in target activity. With induced proximity, that constraint is completely removed. Now, all the drug has to do is touch the target, is hold on to the target, grab the target anywhere, whether that has a functional impact or does not have a functional impact. Because the drug, in the case of induced proximity, if you will, the drug is actually pre-existing in the cell. It's a, nor, it's a natural mechanism, or even outside the cell, it's a natural mechanism within the body that will modulate the activity of the target, either increase it or decrease it. So when you go about uh, designing or coming up with a new, uh, new project for, for a new ProTag, what, how, do, how is that different from your classical um, drug development project? I'll comment on intracellular proteins, and I'll, I'll leave um, Carolyn to comment on extracellular proteins, where you can use the exact same idea. Uh, but obviously implement it in a different way. You know, so number one, you, you don't have to worry about whether the, tar the target is an, is an enzyme or has a pocket, a functional pocket that you can fit a molecule into. Um, but it's still absolutely critical that you can identify chemical matter that binds to the target, right? That is, you still have to get chemical matter that binds and binds with a reasonable degree of affinity, although not necessarily as high of an affinity as you need for a drug. And the reason for that is because a protect can be used catalytically. It can be, it can be recycled and used over and over again and, and, and just deplete the target. So, you, so the requirement on affinity isn't, isn't as high. It has to be reasonably specific Although, again, the requirement on specificity need not be quite as high because what we found is that there are other factors besides binding that, that impact whether or not a protect will work. So not only do you have to bind, but you have to present the target to the ubiquitin ligase in an orientation such that there are lysines available for the ubiquitin ligase to attach ubiquitin to. And we've seen and others have seen that even fairly subtle differences in how that complex form can lead to pretty dramatic differences in the rate at which ubiquitin is transferred. And this is an interesting contrast, I think, to the system that Carolyn has developed. Um, so, you know, you still need small molecules. They need not necessarily be as potent. They need not necessarily be as specific, but then you have all these other constraints that you have to think about, like the geometry of the complex when you make the ternary complex and will ubiquitin get transferred? And if it's transferred, will it be in a position on the target protein that enables the proteasome to unravel and degrade the target protein. So there's still things to worry about. It's just a different set of things that you need to think about that uh, compared to a conventional drug.
Yeah, I guess the other requirement is that the protein needs to be accessible to the proteasome. And I guess that brings us to Carolyn's work that might not necessarily be true for membrane proteins and definitely not true for uh, extracellular proteins. So what do you do about those? Yeah, well, we started thinking about that about four or five years ago, very much inspired by what was going on with Protax and from Ray and Craig Cruz's work and others. Um, and, you know, my own background is focused on cell surface glycoproteins and secreted glycoproteins, which play roles in immune modulation and in cancer progression. And of course, there are many important therapeutic targets that are in the extracellular space, right? Sometimes there are cell surface proteins um, where there's very little of their mass inside the cell and a majority of their mass is kind of facing the outside world. And then there are molecules that are secreted entirely from cells, which are important drug targets, especially pro-inflammatory cytokines, for example, which are targets for inflammatory disease. And just as is the case with certain intracellular proteins like the transcription factors, there are also extracellular proteins which are difficult to drug in the conventional ways. And for extracellular proteins, the conventional ways tend to be both small molecules and also biologics, and monoclonal antibody drugs um, all target extracellular proteins. Um, and so why are some of these extracellular proteins undruggable? Well, again, very similar reasons. Um, some of them have a biological function which you just cannot block with an antibody. It might be because they're biology is more of a physical biology than a biochemical biology, right? There are some extracellular proteins whose job is to be a scaffold or to support the adhesion of a cell to the extracellular matrix, for example. And those targets uh, tend to have many interactions um, over large surface areas, and even an antibody can have a hard time blocking their function. And then there are, there are targets for which um, if you do bind an antibody to them, you can form immune complexes, which themselves can be pathogenic, right? So sometimes an antibody can make matters worse, right? Especially if the target they're binding to plays a role in the immune system and you're con confounding that with, with having antibodies stuck all over them. So for all these reasons, uh, we started thinking about ways that one might target those extracellular proteins for degradation. But of course, it really cannot go through the ubiquitin proteasome system because that's a machinery that is in the cytosol. So if we look at nature, obviously nature has ways of degrading extracellular molecules. And one of those mechanisms is through the endosome lysosome pathway. And that is a pathway that we have exploited to make targeted degraders of extracellular proteins. And the way we do it is we make bifunctional molecules. So just like Protax, there's two parts. One part binds the protein of interest and really could bind it anywhere. It doesn't matter so much where it, it's bound. And the binding does not have to alter the function of that target. It just has to engage the target. And then the other part of the molecule binds a lysosomal trafficking shuttle. And there are about a dozen of these uh, cell surface receptors that you know, will drag their cargo into the lysosome and deposit the cargo there for degradation. So, so our bifunctional molecules are lysosome-targeting chimeras, and we abbreviate those LITACs. 
And they're very much the cousins of the pro-tax. So, so that's one strategy. But then I should point out that there's, there's a second approach that we've also pursued where we design a bifunctional molecule that will bind the target of interest, but rather than drag it into the lysosome through a trafficking receptor, we actually put a degrading enzyme directly onto the binder. So these are molecules that bind the target and degrade it right there, <laughs> like at, at the point of contact. So that's, that's a different strategy. What I think is an uh, interesting uh, difference with the LITAC approach is recall what PROTAC I said. You have to worry about the orientation and geometry of the complex because of two things, the requirement to transfer a ubiquitin molecule and then the requirement for the proteasome to unravel the target while holding on to that ubiquitin molecule. And there are, there are sequence and geometric constraints that affect those two processes. In, in Carolyn's LITAC approach, it's more like you're taking the, car, the, the target, throwing it in a garbage bag, and then throwing the garbage bag in an incinerator. And it really does like orientation <laughs> and other issues because you know, you're just going to throw it in the lysosome and everything is just going to be chewed to, you know, little bits and pieces. So it actually affords a greater plasticity, um, the approach that she's taking uh, for extracellular proteins, um, which is which is a kind of a cool uh, feature of that approach. Yeah. And I love your metaphor of the garbage incinerator. <laughs> and and you're right. I mean, the, the Lytax, they, they seem to be somewhat forgiving of, of structural variation. So you know, you can make a lot of different constructs with different linkers and different geometries. And, and generally, they'll all work to some extent. Um, and um, <laughs> uh, but but, you know, at the same time, um, there are constraints that you have to work within, especially for membrane associated targets, because proteins that are on the plasma membrane have their own lifestyle and they have their own preferences for where they want to traffic to. And the LITAC molecule is driving them to the lysosome, but they might have other machineries interacting with them that were taking them elsewhere. So, um, so it's complicated. And, and, and what I've learned in designing LITACs is that we don't have a very good understanding of natural membrane protein recycling biology and trafficking biology. And I think we're learning in the process of making LITACs about what molecules do want to do and, and how we can, you know, divert them from their preferred pathways and send them down the pathway that we want them to go down. Interesting. In addition to using small molecules, I guess, especially for things targeting the lysosomal pathway, you could also design biologics, right? Yes. Yeah. We uh, have yeah. made LITAC molecules out of monoclonal antibodies, for example, right? Mm -hmm. We have taken antibodies that bind the target of interest and chemically modified them with ligands for a lysosomal trafficking receptor, mm -hmm. right? And But at the same time, we have made other LITACs that have small molecule binders linked to a ligand for a lysosomal trafficking receptor. Uh, so there's, there's some leeway on whether your LITAC is a biologic or a small molecule or a hybrid of the two. And when we're targeting degradation directly without invoking the endosome lysosome pathway, what we're doing is attaching enzymes that can degrade the target to a binding molecule. And generally we're detuning those 
degrading enzymes so that they're very inactive on unbound targets. But once they are locked into a target of interest through a binding element, the proximity allows the degradation. Um, so I think most of, at least in the cl in clinical development, most of Protex, um, of the Protex and molecular glues are in the oncology field. And I guess one question that always arises with oncology drugs are uh, the potential of um, the emergence of resistance when you use use them in um, uh, in, in large tumors and patients. So uh, what have we seen in the clinical trials, well, the few that we have in, in or in animal models in terms of resistance development and what mechanisms uh, might be specific for Protex? Yeah, I don't think we're far enough along yet in the clinical development to know how big of a problem resistance is going to turn out to be. I think it's you could almost be guaranteed that there will be resistance uh, because that that just arises in cancer to almost any kind of drug because of the inherent mutability of cancer cells. You could imagine resistance arising uh, in two very general ways. One is through mutation of the binding site that the that the small molecule grabs onto on the target or mutation of the binding site that the small molecule, the other side of the heterobifunctional molecule, binds to on the ubiquitin ligase. So both of those potentially mutable. Now, in the case of the ubiquitin ligase, that may be less of a risk uh, if one is using a ubiquitin ligase that's essential um, and that the small molecule that grabs onto it is is grabbing onto where the normal substrates uh, would also share that binding site. So, you know, you could imagine that in some cases, depending on the ubiquitin ligase you pick, it, there may be a bias against the target being able to mutate away, but you still would have the potential for the protein you're trying to degrade to mutate such that it no longer binds uh, your, your heterobifunctional protect molecule. Yeah. I seem to remember that the E3 ligases that are currently used are in, uh, in the DEPMEP data, they are relatively neutral. So is that true? Do I remember that correctly, that cancer cells in principle could proliferate without those E3 ligases? Yes. In fact, um, you know, that VHL, which is one of the two that's frequently used, uh, is, is absent in a form of uh, renal cell carcinoma, right? That the cancer is actually caused by loss of VHL. But, you know, there's also many other ligases that we and others are exploring as, uh, you know, that can potentially be used for this, this mechanism of induced uh, proximity targeted protein degradation. Yeah, I guess, Carolyn, without lysosomes, uh, no mammalian cell lives, right? I mean, that's a potential advantage. That's right. You you have to have a lysosome. And, and for many of the trafficking receptors that we are harnessing with Litex, some of those receptors are equally important for viability. They serve housekeeping functions and ensuring that lysosomal enzymes end up in the lysosome in the first place. So to the extent that we can take advantage of a system that's essential and housekeeping and ubiquitous, um, that helps mitigate at least one avenue of resistance, 
But having said that, I think Ray is correct that cancer is such an evolutionary process that one should assume that whatever medicine one develops, that there will be a way to achieve resistance and one has to try to stay one step ahead. Well, I think, Marcus, you know, the, although oncology is certainly an early testing ground for both LITAX and PROTAX, it's not the exclusive venue for using these molecules. And we already see there's one of the small biotechs has a molecule that they've brought forward for use in, in, uh, in inflammatory applications. And so you could imagine using these in infectious disease. You can imagine using them in inflammation and in cardiometabolic disorders uh, across the entire spectrum of human disease. So, um, you know, there's, of course, oncology is attractive because there's a lot of unmet need um, and there may be some greater regulatory flexibility. And so a lot of early stage companies go in that direction. But I think it's really important to understand that LITAX, PROTAX are uh, agnostic of disease. They could be used across uh, the therapeutic spectrum. Yeah. Are there other biomolecules that you could target with PROTAX? But, well, or similar proteins that, um, that are not proteins, like glycoproteins, RNA, lipids? I don't know. I'll leave Carolyn to comment on glycoproteins, but yes, anything that you can come up with a binder for, and there's an enzyme that can modify or metabolize the target, you can, you can do an induced proximity play. So you mentioned RNA. I'll just take that as, as an example. Um, and we're interested in, in, in RNA degraders. Uh, the different people have different names for them. I'll use ribotax. The idea there is you come up with a small molecule that binds an RNA that you want to eliminate, and you come up with another small molecule that binds an RNA enzyme, and you join those two molecules together to make the analog of a protac, a ribotac. And the idea behind the ribotac is it brings your RNA you want to degrade into proximity with your RNA, your RNA enzyme, and that would then degrade the RNA. And so, uh, you know, that's a completely distinct application of the same exact concept. And I'll leave Caroline to elaborate on how you could think about this with glycobiology, for example. Well, yeah. So, you know, um, this is another great feature of the lysosome is that it's, it's packed full of enzymes that can degrade virtually any biomolecule. So there are proteases in the lysosome and they take care of the proteins. But there are also glycosidases in the lysosome, which will degrade polysaccharides. And there are lipases, which degrade lipids, and RNases, which degrade RNA. So um, any type of biomolecule that you can bridge to a lysosomal trafficking shuttle has the potential to be degraded in the lysosome. So, you know, we are very interested in degrading cell surface glycans through the LITAC mechanism. Um, we are also interested in degrading cell surface glyco-RNAs through the lysosome. And if you don't know about glyco-RNAs, <laughs> you're probably in good company because that was a concept that was unknown to the world until less than a year ago when a postdoc in my lab named Ryan Flynn discovered such molecules as ubiquitous uh, 
molecules that are populating cell surfaces and are presented there. Uh, and, and those should be degradable in lysosomes as well by the RNases and the glycosidases. Yeah, so, so I think the concept of proximity-induced degradation extends well beyond proteins. And I should also say that um, the concept of proximity-induced neobiology extends well beyond degradation. And already there are academic labs, certainly, that have published on induced proximity for protein stabilization, the so-called dubtacs, right, which are deubiquitinating enzyme-targeting molecules. Uh, and there are tacs, you know, the proximity-induced molecules that will induce, for example, phosphorylation or dephosphorylation by bridging the gap between the target protein and a kinase or a phosphatase. So I think the PROTAC is a paradigm that people are now riffing on for all kinds of neobiology induced by proximity. I think I only have one question left, left and that is um, uh, a question about what we are seeing in the clinic. I think there are like, I think at least 10 or 15 clinical trials going on. Do we have any indication of how I think especially Protax um, are, are behaving in the clinic, um, or is that just still too early to say? Well, the most advanced program is uh, one that Arvinus uh, has. Arvinus was uh, founded by uh, Craig Cruz, who I had you know co-developed the Protax concept with, and they made uh, degraders, uh, essentially Protax that that specify the degradation of the estrogen receptor and the androgen receptor. The estrogen receptor sustains breast cancers and the androgen receptor sustains uh, prostate cancers. Those are the primary uh, cancers mediated by those particular receptors. You know, there are already drugs that target both receptors, but uh, Craig's lab was able to make degrader molecules, Protax, that targeted the degradation of those proteins. And um, Arvinus has taken both an estrogen receptor and an androgen receptor degrader into the clinic. The estrogen receptor one is the furthest along. Um, both have shown uh, you know, some signs of efficacy in the clinic. So You know, I think we're, everybody is waiting with anticipation to see how those numbers play out in bigger populations. Uh, but so far, the results, uh, the results are encouraging. They look promising. And so, uh, you know, I think that's very exciting for the field. And, and as those results emerge, I think they can really be an, imp an impetus for the field going forward. And then I have one question that I always ask at the end and that is if there's one problem one technology one concept that somebody needs to develop uh some wish list that, uh, what's 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 on the top of your wish list for somebody to come up with i think carolyn has an idea <laughs> me okay well i'll throw i'll throw something out then for me better delivery technologies i mean there are so many really promising like molecules and modalities that end up hitting a brick wall because you just can't deliver those molecules to the tissues and cells where the drug target sits. And 
that's even true for pro-tax and lie-tax. And I think if you talk to people in the industry who are trying to make medicines from these molecules, a lot of them are frustrated that the molecules tend to be larger and flexible and therefore limited in their oral availability and limited in their ability to passage through cell membranes to get inside cells. The same is true for nucleic acid medicines, you know, and, and mRNA vaccines and so on and so forth. I mean, there's so many really exciting next generation medicines that you just cannot get to the right place at the right time. So breakthroughs in delivery could have a huge impact in medicine. I, I would say Carolyn, you know, sort of stole, stole my answer there. Uh, I, would have, I would have said the same thing. Um, you know, if you could deliver drugs to the tissue where the drug needs to act, then you could increase the efficacy of the drug uh, by increasing its concentration where it needs to act, while also increasing its tolerability by preventing it from acting in other places where you don't want it to act. But um, so I'll, I'll give a different answer um, since that she's covered that. Um, the one thing that with, for tax, for example, one thing we know is that the ones that work the best tend to be ones that when you bring the target and the enzyme, the effector, whatever the effector is, and, and for this example, I'll just assume ubiquitin ligase, that when you bring them into proximity, that they fortuitously find interaction surfaces that help stabilize the complex. Okay, They, they find favorable binding energy by contacting each other. And you see that with all most of the molecules that show the greatest efficacy. And the reason is, is that prevents the formation of half complexes. So where you saturate the target with the target binding piece and you saturate the ligase with the ligase binding piece, right? If you have, if the ternary complex is more stable than either binary complex, you essentially drive the formation. It's a cooperative assembly. You favor the formation of that ternary complex where the magic happens. Um, but because these interactions, the whole idea behind tax is that you're bringing together two things in many instances that normally don't come together. Right, you're inducing, as Caroline phrased it. I think she referred to it as neobiology. You're creating neobiology. So, how do you create that at will, like in a in a in a deliberate manner? And right now, we have we really have no way of doing that. And so, what would be great is if somebody comes to me with a target. They say, "Okay, here's a target. I want to degrade this target." And I had a bioinformatic computational tool that would enable me to look at all the ubiquitin ligases in the context of that target and would tell me that, well, if you want to get degradation of this target with a protac or a glue, your best option is to bring it into proximity of ubiquitin ligase 492, okay? There's about 600 ubiquitin ligases. And so, you know, the VHL and CRBN are just two out of the 600, and it stands to reason that 
it's unlikely they're going to be able to form these fortuitous ternary complexes with all possible targets. And this would apply, as Caroline emphasized, tax go beyond proteolysis into all manner of target modulation. But the same concept is going to apply, that you want to bring things together in a way that maximizes ternary complex formation, which is going to require fortuitous interactions. So that's my, I'll put that as my wish list. A method that enables me to enter my proteins on a computer keyboard and it tells me automatically, you know, what I want to target it to. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I'm... I would say it's, I don't think we're so far away from that. And I only say that because, you know, for example, David Baker's lab has just published some work during the last several months about computational design of protein-protein interfaces, right? And, and de novo design of folded small proteins that can bind a surface of interest, all designed computationally. And to me, that says that, you know, there could be a future where the molecular glue interface can also be designed computationally. And I find I share Ray's excitement about that possibility. I think that brings us to an end. Carolyn, Ray, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank Thanks you, a lot, Marcus. It's been great. Okay, that's it. Thanks to Marcus and his guests, Ray and Caroline, for such a great discussion. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, please search Nature Biotechnology and Forum. Also, I thoroughly recommend our serialized podcast on the pioneers of antisense. That's called Hope Lies in Dreams. You can find us on Twitter with the handle at Nature Biotech. Thanks to everybody for listening. And we look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode of Forum where we're going to be exploring single cell analysis. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.